There it goes, deep into center field. Way, way back goes Matty Alou, and that ball is in astro orbit. And the little dynamo, the toy cannon, now has 76 runs batted into the year. What a shot. Hey there, everybody, and welcome to episode six of the Toy Cannon Cannon. I'm Vic Raghupathy. I'm Jacob Wessels. Do I get to introduce myself? Yeah. Oh my gosh, wow. I'm Jimmy Arvan. Both of our loyal listeners have heard your voice before. So. I guess I'm back again, right? Yeah. He wasn't, so. he wasn't too <laughs> scared <laughs> off by his first appearance. Yes. This is our little quarantine project. I think everyone's got a little quarantine project, even Doug Peterson and Howie Roseman. Yeah. Now they have their fun little quarterback factory to look after. Yeah, they were a little, I guess they were a little bored during quarantine. They needed a project or two. Long have I endorsed having two quarterbacks on the field at the same time. I think there's so much stuff you can do with like options that are like RPOs, but the RPO is like, do you hand it to the other quarterback and the other quarterback throws it or do you throw it yourself? There's lots of interesting ways to reinvent offense. I mean, I'm in. I'm in on it if Doug promises to get just absolutely wild if he wants to become the most creative play caller in the history of ever could you imagine him deciding you know what this is it i'm gonna make history now i think everyone's so caught up on the eagles to a quarterback why did they take a quarterback what the hell are they gonna do with the quarterback they're not actually looking at the quarterback prospect himself and saying is this even a good pick if you're just taking him to be a quarterback Right, exactly. I don't don't know if that's true. If you think about other quarterbacks who've been taking taken in that mid second round area, you're not looking at a lot of hits. You're looking at a lot of misses. Geno Smith, Christian Hackenberg. I am a little bit disappointed they didn't take Denzel Mims only for the fact that he is afraid of Philadelphia. (laughs) It would have been a great meshing of interests there if he had to come play in the place where he was afraid of. Like I wonder where he'd live. Would he just commute from New York every day? Imagine how good he would be on the road. He would be oh, thank God. We're not in South Philly. I'm out of the city. The I can play well now. Who, now I can relax. He's the only player in the NFL who gets more comfortable playing road games. He's like, finally, we're on a road trip. <laughs> it's like, all right, let's get this dub, and then we're going back to the crib. We're going to the Meadowlands next weekend. <laughs> I am not much of a gamer at all. How about you guys? Did you guys play many video games growing up? Like I played a lot of sports games, but I didn't really play things that weren't sports games. I played them, but like they were all sports games. I would say the exact same thing for me. <laughs> but for all of us, the backyard series of games was absolutely fantastic. The main backyard game that everyone loves to talk about is, of course, backyard baseball. And I'm not going to front. Backyard baseball is a fantastic game. It is one. Of, it is legitimately one of the best baseball video games ever. It consistently gets put in that conversation, and it deserves to be in that conversation. But in all this time that we spend glorifying backyard baseball and giving it the pray the heaps of praise that it deserves, we forget the hidden gem of the backyard sports franchise, and that is backyard soccer. Backyard Soccer was the second game released 
uh, in the backyard sports franchise. Baseball was the first. And then just about a year later, soccer came out. I played it all the time as a kid. And, and I always remembered and I always thought about and I always liked to mention how good of a game it was. But I really got reintroduced to it a few months ago when my girlfriend, who has a PC, I have a Mac, but she's got like a Dell, actually had the game on a thumb drive. And she would bring her computer over and then I can play on her computer because for some reason it doesn't work on a Mac because Apple sucks. And I got back into the game and it was fantastic. This game was way better way more intricate was given much more attention by its developers than it ever needed to be considering the clientele i think you could say that about most any backyard game but this one especially i think just had so much detail put into it what did you guys like about the backyard sports games i know you guys both mostly played baseball right i mean yeah i mostly played backyard baseball to me it was just and I, so I also mostly play backyard baseball on the Wii, which is an important caveat to this. I didn't even know um, it was on the Wii. I was going to say, I didn't know they yeah, made it for the Wii. They released Wii. a backyard baseball game on the, the Wii. It was like backyard baseball 08 or 09 or something. And it was fantastically fun. And it was all of the players that I had grown up with playing with a bunch of these kids. And it felt personal, but it, it was fun. And it was realistic and cartoonish at the same time. It's like the perfect mix of everything you want out of a sports video game, honestly, especially one that you're just going to sit down as an eight-year-old and play for 30 minutes before dinner or something. The one thing I really like, and that I kind of forgot until I picked it up and played it again, is that it's just point and click. You literally are just using the mouse and the cursor, and you're just clicking in certain parts, at least in soccer. You're just clicking in certain parts of the screen where you want the ball to go. It's so insanely easy, even though it's a very low barrier of entry. That doesn't make it any less fun. That's what I was going to say, is that I remember the game. Like, And I'm not saying maybe I just wasn't that good at it, but I remember the computer being very fair and balanced. Like, I, I didn't win every game, even after playing it a lot. Like I would, I would like get through, like I would, I would like get through like the seasons and the championships and stuff, but it didn't get to the point where it was boring because it was too easy. Even though the controls were simple, like it still was entertaining and I still had to like try it to beat the computer. Yeah, definitely. It was definitely a case for me as like an eight year old, but I absolutely destroyed when I played just recently. Like I went 14. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. 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 And I, <laughs> I like scored five goals a game and I let up maybe two all year and one of them was a PK. The Barcelona of the backyard. <laughs> what players did you guys like playing with? I just looked at my at my roster. I'll tell you my with my roster. So, so that was one of my my main questions for you is is like how similar is the like the roster mechanics? Are the same people who are good in baseball good in soccer? So let's see. I, you played much more baseball than I did, actually. I'm pretty sure that like, my baseball disc stopped working after a little while, and the one that was both good and consistently working throughout my childhood was soccer, so that's why I played it more. I'm a much bigger baseball fan than I am a soccer fan, but baseball just stopped working after a little while. We never replaced it. So, yeah, tell me who was good, who was especially good at baseball. Obviously, everyone knows that Pablo was the GOAT when it came to baseball. But who else was good? 
But how, how is Pablo in soccer is like my main question. Is he still the GOAT or is he just an average soccer player? He's above average. You know, but he's, he's, not, he's, he's not pretty good. Pablo's, Pablo's pretty good. He's fast and he's, he's good uh, with controlling. He's definitely – he's a desirable player. He's not like OP. I don't know uh, if he's OP in baseball, but he's, he's just a good, solid player that you want on your team. According um, to the uh, according sure to, according to the wiki, the like the ratings of players are measured on kicking, control, defense, and running. Yeah, and they're rated on a scale of soccer balls. So four soccer balls being the best. Yeah, and so Pablo is on my team. I'll I'll go through my roster in a second after you guys talk about what players you remember being good in baseball. Because I meticulously went through everybody and I chose really who I thought were the best players, whether they were names or not. But yes, Pablo Sanchez was on my soccer team. Keisha Phillips was who I always had to hit home runs. She was oh, always yeah. the, the power Absolute hitter. Bomber. Yeah. Dante Robinson, I always picked. Uh, he was always really good. Pete Wheeler, because just because like any hit he got could be a triple at least. Because he was so much faster than everyone else. He has great pace. I used him a lot. I remember I used him a lot as a kid. My roster that I just made didn't exactly look like the roster I had a lot as a kid. When I was a kid, um, I I used Pete Wheeler a lot. I did use Keisha a lot as like a center back. She's like, <laughs> she's kind of like Virgil Van Dyke sometimes. I used Dmitry Petrovich just because. I love Dmitry Petrovich. How he could you always, not have him on your team? He would always catch for me. He was my catcher in like every game. I don't know. I was growing up in an era where I was like, ah, the catcher is a bad hitter and he hits eight because it was Carlos Ruiz. And so Dmitry Petrovich was my Carlos Ruiz. Here's who I ended up choosing. So you choose eight players, six of them start. I played a 2-2-1, two, two, right? Is it two in the front, two in the middle, one in the back and then a goalie. Here's the real goat of backyard soccer, and here's the beauty of it. The best player in backyard soccer, I always thought growing up, and I was confirmed recently, is Kenny Kawaguchi. Mm. Interesting. Kenny Kawaguchi is fantastic, and I love it because he's the kid in the wheelchair. He doesn't have usable legs. <laughs> and he's, he's fantastic, too. You know, he's just solid. He's not a four in anything. He's a couple of threes, a couple of twos. He just does everything well. And His I sister think he, has I think two fours, of, too. Yeah, I think he, he gets shortchanged a little bit in his ratings. I think his control is a little better than a two. I think he could legitimately be like threes across the board. But so I had Kenny Kawaguchi and Pablo Sanchez, my other forward. So he's he's just really good maybe not like the goat like he is in baseball but he's fantastic he's someone you want on your team now my midfielders are ricky johnson just tears down the field he's so fast he does the thing that kids do when they're playing soccer where like they can't really control it so they kick the ball forward like five and then just yards, chase after it <laughs> after it he does that but no one can catch up to him yeah he's not so, he's not quite the baseball player he's he's pretty bad at baseball from what i remember but yeah, he's he's got a one in in defense. So I but I, I have him as a midfielder. He's kind of my attacking mid. And then my other midfielder is Lisa Crockett. I was hoping you would say that name because she's got Lisa threes Crockett, across the board. I, I was so surprised by this. 
Lisa Crockett has a three in every category. That's How do remarkable. You not want that in your midfield. Yeah, she's just the complete player. That's so open. Like no one would ever suspect that. Especially out of Lisa Crockett of all people. I know. Like complete. Like not even a player that I remembered being in the game when I rediscovered this. And she's a three in everything. And she's fantastic. She is the reason why I only need one player on defense, and that one player is Dante Robinson. Who's got a four. I was hoping you'd say him, too. Yeah, he's got a four on defense, and he's got a three on running, but he could honestly have a four. Like, he's great. Like, the only thing is, like, he doesn't exactly have a boot, but he doesn't really need one. And then my goalkeeper is Billie Jean Blackwood. Mm. She is tall, but... She's uh, super tall. Rangy. She's super tall, and she's got... Uh, three in defense. She can kick really well. She can control the ball well. And she's tall, like you said. So she's really good. I let appearances fool me because she did not get selected as my starting goalkeeper at, at the beginning. So she and Ricky were both on my bench when I started out, or she might have been on defense when I started out. But Ricky was on the bench, and then I discovered that he's an absolute monster. He just tears down the field and can score like two goals a game. So he's fantastic. But originally, I had Stephanie Morgan as mm. my goalkeeper, who's ah. got like a one in kicking and control, but a four in defense. But she fooled me because she's dressed up like a goalie. So I'm like, <laughs> obviously, she's the best goalie in the game. I that need her in goals. She's the one that wants to play goalie. But she's kind of a mediocre keeper. And she, she kicked the ball more control. She just spill everything in front of her. She would have costly rebounds. <laughs> exactly. They were getting too many second chance opportunities. I was only letting up like a few goals through the season, but sometimes they would be costly. Sometimes I would win games like 2-1. I will say I'm glad Billie Jean Blackwood has found another passion in soccer because in my, by my estimate, she is the worst baseball player. Like, her ratings are not maybe the worst, but she just always sucked. Like, she was never good. She never had anything redeeming about her on the baseball field. So if you can put her in net and she's happy in net, I'm glad that she's, she's you know, gone to greener pastures and she can stay the hell away from baseball fields. Damn. Tell us what you really think. Well, you know, that's the good thing about these fake players. You can be really mean and they're not going to come back and get you. Oh, they are children. So it feels, <laughs> it does feel a bit wrong. When you like select them or something, when like you're drafting your team, some of them are like kind of spiteful. Like, you know, like you pick them or like you look at their card and then you don't select them. And then they say, you'll be sorry. <laughs> Thank you. You'll some regret this. Like, and then some of them are like, that's okay. <laughs> I hope you have fun. <laughs> And then my last one was Sally Dobbs. And she's kind of like Lisa Crockett, where she's a three in everything except for control, where she's a two. And so she's like another, like, she's like a backup defender. Stephanie's kind of a backup defender, backup keeper. And then, I mean, I've got like four people on the field that can play well at attack. So my starters are Kenny, Pablo, Ricky, Lisa. Dante in the back, and Billie Jean Blackwood in goal. That's the kind of team that can take you anywhere you need to go. And we'll talk about where you go in this game because you go places in this game that you would never even dream of in the backyards of backyard baseball. 
So, so one other question I have about the players, though, is in backyard baseball, most of the most popular player selections are actual MLB players. Is and that not the case that, in backyard soccer? So backyard baseball and backyard soccer both have original versions and they have pro player versions that came out a couple of years later. Now, I never had the original backyard baseball. I had the backyard baseball with pro players. And I think pretty much everybody did. Yeah. Because everybody loves talking about like little kid Ken Griffey Jr. or like little kid, I don't know, Randy Johnson. Was Randy Johnson? All those things. But the thing I really loved about playing this game, and there is an MLS version that's got like young Mia Ham and stuff like that. But the thing I loved about this was having to actually create a good roster and not being able to let MLB players just carry the load for you. Because I think really you could pick a couple MLB players from what I remember of playing backyard baseball and they could pretty much like just lead the way. Like I could have Barry Larkin and Ken Griffey Jr. and they would just take me where I needed to go. Yeah, there's certainly an extra element of roster management because it was very easy to load up on the major league players and just have a destructive team. You had to usually balance or cap them. Like I remember when I would play head-to-head against people, I'd be like, yeah, you can have three major leaguers and the rest have to be kids. Right, so then it was like another resource game of like, how do you best use your three major leaguers? What would you guys like to name your teams and what colors would you guys like to pick? I'm very boring. I would always just relocate like actual MLB teams. So I would take like their real logo and their real name and then just put them in like a random city. Oh, that's, that's a thing that you could do in baseball? In, well, in backyard baseball, the all, they have the MLB license. So all of the major league logos and names are available to you. So you can choose between blue, red, crazy, white, green. I don't know why they put crazy in the middle of all five of the colors. Little, mighty, super duper, humongous, and junior. Those are all your place names. I'm sure you guys are up on your geography. And your team names could be the Bombers, the Rockets, the Hornets, the Boots, the Giants, the Wombats, the Melonheads, the All-Stars, the Monsters, and the Fishes. I probably used wombats most, but then I also definitely used melon heads a little bit. I used all stars a little bit, and I used bombers a little bit. And so, in revisiting it, I wanted to use a name that I never really used. Although when I was reanalyzing it today, I was like, "Why didn't I use melon heads? I should have used melon heads." That's such a great name. That's a great name. That and wombats are fantastic. And so I used fishes. Use the super duper fishes. Super duper was really only the only like place name that caught my eye. My colors were primary red and then blue. Who thought of that? Who was just sitting around like, you know, after the all stars, we should have the melon heads and wombats. But here's the thing you'll get absolutely shafted because there are so many great non playable names. The structure of backyard soccer is you start off in, like, the B division. You start off in the B flight with all the other backyard teams, the humongous Melonheads or the Green Giants or the Super Duper All-Stars. And then if you finish top two in that, then you move up a flight. And by the way, there's in every season, there's a mid-season tor- indoor tournament also. So you play those indoor teams. But so if you finish top two in, in your B division, you move up to the A division. And then you play the A division teams. And, like, you're playing, like, middle school fields now. Like, the fields are getting a little bit better. 
team names are now like non-playable. Like you play like the Atomic Oysters, the Minty Pickles, or the Scrambling Egg Headers. If you finish top two in the A division, it doesn't stop there. You get promoted to the Premier Division. And now you're playing at like college fields. You're not playing in the backyards anymore. You're in the Premier Division playing against the Salty Sea Cows, the Woolly Mammoths, Sneaky Cheetahs. And then it doesn't end there. If you finish top two in the Premier Division, you get to compete for the astonishingly shiny Cup of All Cups. And those teams that you play there are actually international teams. There are 21 different countries that you can play in the astonishingly shiny Cup of All Cups. And it has group stages. And then maybe even 16 teams from those groups advance to the knockout stages. And then you play them. And if you go all the way, and you advance to the Astonishingly Shiny Cup Ball Cup Final, and you win that, and you hoist the cup, the players do a whole lap. They're not controlled by you anymore. They break free, and they do a lap around the field while fireworks go off, and there's applause and cheers, and you're playing on the world stage here. Do you want to hear some of the best international names? I would love to. So from Japan, you've got the origami tsunamis. They don't even use an adjective for that one. From Ireland, you've got the potto goals. <laughs> Peru, you've got the red hot llamas. I always like that. That one's great. Argentina's got the goal scoring gauchos. <laughs> and then whoever came up with the melon heads and the wombats when it came to the playable names really must have like been able to go wild here i imagine they assigned all of these or some of these to that guy and he really outdid himself when he busted out for colombia the dancing papagayos <laughs> you guys know what a papagayo is no <laughs> it's like a bird it's like a macaw or like a parrot it's like a, it's <laughs> but like they're a dancing bird. but he didn't want to go macaw or parrot no he went papagayo they they said to some poor intern i need a 10 page cultural analysis of colombia and then he was like great we'll go with the papagayos and some intern had done like a week's worth of work <laughs> just to come up with the name for colombia <laughs> and the best one the best one the one that takes the cake, the one that makes this entire game worth making. This game could have been as shitty as they wanted to make it, even if they just included this little detail. The Russian national team in this game, their nickname is the Bees. They are called the KGBs. <laughs> the KGBs, the KGBs. Oh, it's just, I can't get enough of it. <laughs> oh my goodness. That's crazy. I can't believe it. <laughs> oh my god. This Amazing. game was just so much just got so much more detail than it ever needed to have. It could have just been like backyard baseball where you play a season and then you play the playoff, but it's got three different flights of competition where the competition actually does get markedly stiffer and you play on better and better fields against cleverer and cleverer named teams and you've got a mid-season invitational tournament that you have to earn the right to go to and they've got a full-blown 
international Champions League tournament. And that competition is really stiff. Like, it is legitimately hard. Like, you'll have entire halves where you don't score at all. Like, you really can't let up any goals. And that's why you've got Billie Jean Blackwood between the pipes. So I just realized that if you click on the wikis for all of these, like, international teams, they've got the players. Like, they name the players. Like, the dancing papagayos have Paula de Aspria in goal. <laughs> and, like, if you go to, like, the KGBs, they've got, like, their names that you can read in English, like Yuri Zubko or Igor Zlotnik. And they have their names written in Cyrillic. In Russian. Cyrillic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, That's God. insane. It went way, way more detailed than they ever needed to and i could not thank them enough can you imagine a kid's a game for an eight-year-old going to all that detail of what actual what actually happens in the soccer world getting from if you if you go through a season in the a division or the premier division where you don't do well and you finish in the bottom two you're going to get relegated can i ask you one more thing that you haven't touched on yet yeah Talk about the announcers. Oh, you've got Sunny Day and the announcer from across the pond in England, Earl Grey. <laughs> I knew it would be something good. I knew it would be something good. He's no Vinny the Gooch. Is That's that who I remembered from baseball. Really? Yeah. yeah he was like, <laughs> where it comes from. He's he was, got like giant glasses and like this huge ring on his finger and like. He's got like a heavy <laughs> accent too. Like he, I have Italian no idea accent? where they came up with the character. Oh, backyard soccer is such a great game. And I, I love the heaps of praise that backyard baseball gets. But we, you know, all of us need to band together and make sure that backyard soccer gets just as much publicity as backyard baseball. All in all, humongous entertainment has been humongously entertaining throughout many kids' childhoods, and backyard soccer needs to get its due. In 1908, a new coach by the name of Gil Dobie takes over the Washington Husky football program. So the longest winning streak to ever be recorded in the history of college football belongs to the Oklahoma Sooners, which isn't that surprising. Um, and there are 47 consecutive wins under coach Bud Wilkinson between the years 1953 and 1957 remains one of the most impressive feats to ever have been accomplished in the sport and is a testament to the prestige and respect the program has developed over its storied existence. Like you would expect a team like Oklahoma to hold that record. However, the second place program on this list is one that certainly has a storied past in college football, but is one that might not come to mind when discussing like the upper echelon of college football programs. Nonetheless, the University of Washington Huskies between 1908 and 1914 compiled a record of 39-0. and 0. Not only did they win, but they won big, with lopsided victories such as 100 to nothing over Whitworth, 72 to nothing over Cal, 99 to nothing over Warden and 81 to nothing over the Rainier Valley Agricultural College. Cal in Cal. that series. Yes, like the Cal, Cal Golden Bears. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I feel like you buried the lead there. Yeah. Well, I mean, so I'll get to the I'll get to that kind of aspect of the story. 
UW was one of the most successful independent collegiate programs in the country at the time, and most of the country didn't really take notice because they were on the West Coast. But this early success laid the groundwork for the development of a program that now has one of the most passionate fan bases and vibrant game day scenes in the entire country. And it was all sparked by a man with the nickname Gloomy Gill. Robert Gilmore Gill Doby was born on January 1st, 1879 in Hastings, Minnesota. He was an orphan by the age of eight, and he was quickly taught to fend for himself and developed a remarkable work ethic and a perfectionist hell-bent pursuit of success. He graduated high school at the age of 21, and at the University of Minnesota served as the quarterback for the program's first Big Ten championship while earning a degree in law. Following his graduation, he immediately began his coaching career, first at Southside High in Minneapolis, and then at the North Dakota Agricultural College, which is now North Dakota State, from 1906 to 1907. He never lost a game at both spots, and in 1908 was hired to become the head coach at the University of Washington on an annual salary of $1,200, which was a lot for a coach at the time. And his coaching style once he arrived at the university was, to say the least, unique. He was known for lambasting his players even following great performances. He once made his squad run 20 laps around the field following a 70 to nothing victory and berated them following a 90 to nothing finish for not putting up 100 points. He closed his practices to students and only allowed them to watch when they turned out in great numbers. Like he would only allow students to watch if a ton of them came out. He frequently removed players from his team for violations of his stringent rules and earned the ire of sports writers, faculty, and even the mayor of Seattle with his abrasive personality. He wore a trench coat, he smoked cigars, and was generally as disagreeable as they come. But man, did the guy win. Over the course of his tenure at Washington, his teams never lost a game. Across a span of eight seasons, the Huskies compiled a record of 59-0-3, featuring that 40-game win streak that I mentioned earlier. They absolutely obliterated teams, putting up scores that seem impossible even given the level of competition. And while they did regularly play high schools in exceedingly small programs, they regularly trounced bigger West Coast programs like Oregon, Oregon State, Cal, and Washington State that had football programs at the time. And these successes earned him a tremendous amount of respect around the university in the Seattle area. Despite his brutal coaching style, his players worshipped him. From UW's quarterback at the time, Wee Coyle, there were no smiles, no handshakes, no slaps on the back, nothing but a pair of black eyes coldly peering out of a dark face. Many of the players thought about leaving. This tall glob of gloom couldn't tell us what to do. But when it came to depart, something besides the love of our homes, our sweethearts, and our friends kept us on the right track. It was the spell of Gil Doby. At the end of four weeks of the hardest kind of practice, we were eating out of his hand. Like That's a direct quote from one of his players in a biography that was later written about him. He described this guy as a student of psychology who understood men and would go right up to the breaking point and then leave you out on a limb. Seattle Times once wrote, his pessimism is not voice for the assimilation of the public, but it is for the members of his football squad alone. He was known for his colorful use of language, once calling one of his teams the dumbest, clumsiest, rankest collection of so-called football excuses I've ever seen. And they went undefeated. They'd never lost a game. (laughs) Needless to say, this guy is one of the greatest coaches of all time. And he did this at each of his spots. Um, He eventually left Washington, and that's definitely a story that needs to be told. But he went on to coach at Navy, where he compiled a record of 17-3 and over three seasons. And then he went on to coach at Cornell for 15 years. He coached the Cornell program for 15 years. From 19 to 21 and to 1923, they didn't lose a game either. He compiled an 82-36-7 record at Cornell and then finished his career at Boston College, where he went 16-6-5. Overall, 
He had a 780 career winning percentage going 180, 45, and 15 all time. And the most points his team ever gave up across an entire season was 20. Over the course of an entire season, his teams yes. never gave up within 20 points. Across wow. The wow. Like his, his teams were dominant. The only years when, they, when his teams really weren't good were his final two years at Cornell. Otherwise, he was dominant. And he was recognized as a charter member of the College Football Hall of Fame. He was elected in 1951. And he was a name that I honestly had never heard of before this, but he is genuinely one of the oldest, one of the greatest coaches of all time. And he's never really mentioned in those conversations. Yeah, you hear all the time about, you know, John Heisman and, and Newt Rockney and people like that. But Gil Doby, I feel like I've I has never has never come up. Why do you think that is? Is it just because he didn't coach at Notre Dame? Most things that I read said that, yeah, it was mostly because Washington at the time wasn't a very high-profile location to be at. And even though he did a lot of good for the school, it wasn't really recognized on a national scale. He really gained his reputation while at Cornell. Like The coach that he took over for at Cornell was Pop Warner, who he is generally compared to. You know, Pop Warner was coaching at this time, but the guy that nobody talks about is Gil Doby, who was also, you know, kind of revolutionary in the same way that Pop Warner was. So once people started to kind of recognize his legacy at Cornell, they looked back at his career at Washington and said, like, you know, that's incredible to spend eight years at a school and never lose a game. But the most remarkable thing is that he was fired. He didn't leave Washington. He was fired. How? Players loved him. Like, even though he was a hard ass, like, people loved to come play for him. Yeah. So after the 1915 season, he suddenly resigned, which a lot of people were disappointed by, including the school's administration. The school's president at the time, Henry Suzalo, held this massive luncheon in his honor. He was given tons of gifts. People begged him not to leave. But so he went on this pilgrimage to California. He visited his, visited his sisters. And then on his way back to his home, he stopped in Seattle again just to basically say hi. And alumni and the administration basically begged him to return for another season. And he said yes. And so he say they got him back for the 1916 season. And it started out just like how every other season had before. They went undefeated. They didn't lose games. And everybody was like, great, we got him back. And he's here to stay. Then, as there always seems to be in college football nowadays, there was a scandal. And it had to do with academics, which is such a problem now in college football. And this was the original academic scandal in college football. And it involved a really highly touted defensive player named Phil Grimm. But he was one of a few players on the Washington squad that was enrolled in the National Guard at the same time. So he was playing football. He was a full-time student, and he was a part of the National Guard. So he would be shuttled back and forth between Tacoma, where the base was, and the university. And it was as hard as it sounded. Like, he actually was removed from the team at one point in September because Doby didn't think he was honoring his commitment to the football team enough. He eventually found his way back onto the team, mostly because of his talent in October. But he was discovered that he had cheated on a history exam. And this obviously was not taken lightly by the faculty at the University of Washington. And he was suspended from November 20th, 1916 to December 1st, 1917, over a year's worth of suspension. But the significance of this was that it was the day before the Thanksgiving season finale against 
those formidable Cal Golden Bears. And the student populace and the team was livid. They were like, how could you do this? How could you start the suspension a day before the game? Why not just push it back and have the suspension start at the end of the season and he'll sit out the next season? And the players went on a strike. They were so mad that they went on a strike. And so they didn't practice for two days and Doby took their side. He was like, there's no other guy on this team to play the position that Bill Grimm was supposed to. And so he said, if they don't want to play, I'm not going to make them play. Having known this Gil Doby guy for all of five minutes, that doesn't seem like the Gil I know. The one aspect that always rubbed people the wrong way about this guy, about Gil Doby, though, is that he really didn't care about school. Really? He earned the dislike of some of the faculty members because he made so much more money than them and generally disparaged the idea of school and expected his football players to put football first. Wow, this guy's like the anti-Lou Holtz. Yeah, he really did not expect them to perform in the classroom. Yeah, it's a line of thinking way, way before his time. Because, like, we kind of take that for granted now. But even still, you think, like, you yearn for the good old days when student athletes were really student athletes and they put academics first. And Exactly. And he didn't condone the cheating, but he also didn't decry it and stood with his players when they tried to get him back. So ultimately, the alumni and even Bill Grimm himself convinced the team to play. And, of course, they won. They beat Cal 14-7 to and finished the season undefeated. but. Following that season, he was fired by Henry Cesalo, the same guy who in 1915, a mere year earlier, was like, no, please don't leave. But then he fired him, saying the chief function of the university is to train Kariser, and Mr. Doby failed to perform his full share of this service on the football field. Therefore, we do not wish him to return. So the entire university, except for the student body and the team, basically turned against him after this. There was a night in December after the season ended when you know, it was announced that Doby would be fired and he wouldn't be coming back and kind of this glorious era of Washington football would be over that a huge group of students, hundreds of students gathered around his house. They visited his on-campus house and stood in his yard and chanted his name until he came out and then they applauded for three minutes straight, basically in honor of this football coach who is now departing. It was such a remarkable send-off for a guy that was so beloved by his players and his students, but really despised by society at large. To be fair, he did reach the pinnacle of his sport. He got to the East Coast, he signed with a big program, and he stayed there for 15 years. So he was ultimately recognized for his achievements. And, and by all accounts, he wasn't a bad guy. He was just kind of an asshole. He grew yeah, up orphan in like, Mon- in like Montana or Minnesota. Yeah, Minnesota, yeah. In Minnesota in the early 1900s, like, wouldn't you kind of be like a hardened asshole? Yeah, a little bit. But he also, a guy who came to mind, and maybe it's too simple a comparison, but to me, he sounds like Bill Belichick, where he doesn't have a lot of personality, uh, but he's an amazing coach, and he really knows how to work with people, and he needed a certain player to play for him. And the players that he did choose to play for him were some of the best in the country, and they just did not lose. Like losing was not an option. And that was the message that he sent from the beginning. He was hired because it was generally considered that nobody cared about Washington football. But if you think about Washington football now, the passion for the fan base has survived the addition of major pro sports into Seattle, into the Seattle area, which is not the case for a lot of teams. Early success really laid the groundwork for the fact that the program is still relevant today. 
we're on the Rainier Valley Athletic Club. Exactly. <laughs> but like, what, what was the coaching style? What kind of schemes did he like to draw up? One thing that I did see about uh, the schemes that he liked to run is that he liked a lot of liked to run a lot of trick plays. Um, he had one play called that that was called like the bunk play, which sounded like it involved like a series of direct handoffs that were meant to like serve as misdirection for the defense. So it sounded like he was kind of an innovative play caller. It was said that when Coyle was the quarterback, he would bring just him to his house prior to Daggett prior to game day and they would sit in his house and there would be newspaper clippings and diagrams all over the walls and he would sit there and he would just talk at Coyle he wouldn't say anything like Coyle wouldn't it wasn't a dialogue Coyle would just sit there and absorb and Doby would stand there and talk about what they were going to do and then his concluding remarks would always be like play like you would die if you didn't win here's a description of of his coaching style it says his teams relied on the run but he was an early innovator who embraced the pass, recruited speed, and pushed his players to pick up the tempo to wear out opponents. Same thing as the system. So it sounds like he was kind of an early proponent of taking advantage of the relative lack of conditioning that a lot of college football players probably had at the time. Is this something he said, the, I am always right, you are always wrong? Yes, that is. that was his mantra. Um, <laughs> See, that, that sounds about <laughs> as Belichick as a um well another one of the quotes that he had um i'll try and find the exact thing just so i do it justice um but he eventually left cornell the only period of uh, uh the only period of his football coaching career where he didn't have success was his final two years at cornell and he eventually quit at cornell because of the lack of talent that he eventually had um and he remarked that you can't win games with five beta kappas assuming that I, I assuming that he was eventually being given a bunch of frat guys to play on his football team uh, who had a propensity to drink. And I would imagine that that did not go well with his uh, up-tempo, conditioning-heavy style of play. It might even be the exact opposite. Phi Beta Kappa is like an academic honor society. Ah! <laughs> well, there you go. All the, all the, we've got all these... Pretty much he's saying we've got all these nerds for oh. now. <laughs> but so I was wrong. It wasn't frat guys. It was the nerds. I came to the Ivy League to coach football players, not nerds. What are you doing? <laughs> Academics. I mean, this is, the, this is the beginning of the end for Ivy League football when the nerds won out over Gil Doby. Yeah. And that's when it went downhill. Right after that, you kind of started to see some of the other major like Big Ten programs start to get on the scene and the dominance of the Ivy League start to fade away. It's because the nerds took over. People started caring about school, if you can imagine that. So my last thing, I want to, uh, I want to cover the, the story with the mayor a little bit more because it's actually called the peanut incident. And so only six weeks into the job is when this incident occurred. So Dobie was known as this lanky guy. He was tall. He was six feet. Um, and he was blocking the view of the mayor and the Seattle postmaster. And one of them said, sit down, you big bum. They started yelling at him. Uh, and he did not respond uh, because he did not appreciate being talked to in such a manner. But then the two started throwing peanuts at him. They started throwing peanut shells at Dobie, and he still did not respond. And so they did this for apparently like a long time. Like they just continued to throw their peanut shells at him. And eventually he turned around and just unleashed like a 
searing tirade of words at them because he apparently could cuss like a sailor. And it eventually ended up making the local newspaper and the councilman sent a uh, letter to the university president saying, we do not recommend this guy as your football coach. So six weeks into his career, he almost had it ended because he was too stubborn to sit down at a football game. Um, so I feel like all of this kind of gives a pretty good description of the type of guy that he was. It's something I love is that sometimes we get this sense that like people a hundred years ago were much more sophisticated than us or, you know, were good upright gentlemen, you know, the way that we think of maybe like British nobles or something like that. Like we almost right. assign that same sort of sophistication to them. <laughs> but we fail to realize and it's stories like this that remind us that they were just as petty and just as silly and just as weird as we are now. They're the same people. They just yeah. used weird old timey dialogue. Yeah, it just took a different form. And now here comes Lofton all the way, and he scores. And the hustling Kenny Lofton all the way from second. 18 strikeouts for Corey Kluber. Blew it right by him. What a night for the Indians' right-hander. Jerry Dibzinski grew up in Cleveland. He was probably dreaming of leading his hometown Cleveland Indians to glory as he played for Collingwood High School just outside Cleveland. He may have been picturing himself taking over at shortstop for his hometown squad, who had just two seasons over 500 in the last 15 years, when he stayed home to play for Cleveland State University. But these sorts of dreams never come true. But things just seem to work out for Jerry. He was drafted in the 15th round by his hometown Cleveland Indians, and after tearing it up in single A, he was promoted immediately to triple A. Just one year later, Dubzinski was in the major leagues. Sometimes, dreams do come true. Now, this is the part of the story where I'm supposed to tell you guys Dubzinski played five years for the Indians as a key starter. He led them back to the playoffs in the World Series. He made all-star games. He batted leadoff for the team. And he starred game seven in the closest Cleveland's ever gotten to a World Series since Bob Feller. But these dreams don't come true. After 242 games, 591 plate appearances of a 584 OPS, Jerry had worn out his welcome in Cleveland and was shipped off to the Chicago White Sox for first baseman Pat Tabler. Tabler would go on to start at first base for Cleveland for five seasons, and while not a star, he was a key part of the Cleveland lineup. He was nicknamed Mr. Clutch for his knack of collecting clutch hits with runners on base. His career OPS was 100 points better with runners in scoring position. And this was especially prevalent with his prowess for batting with the bases loaded, where he had a near 1,200 OPS and 500 average. Tabler even made the All-Star game in 1987. The trade certainly didn't make Cleveland a contender. It was certainly a win. Looking to capitalize on Tabler's All-Star value and his impending free agency, the Indians shipped him off at the 1988 trade deadline to the Kansas City Royals for a more familiar name, Bud Black. Well, he's now known as a manager, Black was also a successful major league pitcher. And by the time he got to Cleveland, he'd already accrued 13 career beat war. But Black was injured and struggling to the tune of a five ERA in the 1988 season. But the next season, Black would bounce back. He pitched 221 innings, recorded a 336 ERA and a 118 ERA plus. And by the 1990 trade deadline, the Toronto Blue Jays figured they could use Black for their pennant run, acquiring him for a package of three players including one named Alex Sanchez. 
Sanchez would never play a game in Cleveland. Instead, he was shipped back to the Blue Jays a month later for a player named Willie Blair. And this is just kind of speculation on my part, but I think the Indians wanted Blair all along, but couldn't trade for him at the time because he was injured. So they kind of had this weird gentleman's agreement to take Sanchez, but then trade Sanchez back for Blair if they wanted to. And so they decided to execute on that. And Blair was not good in Cleveland and couldn't stay long either. He had like a five plus ERA as a reliever. But he was traded to the Houston Astros for a center fielder by the name of Kenny Lofton. So you all definitely didn't know Jerry. And you almost certainly didn't know Pat Tabler. And you probably knew Bud Black. But everybody knows Kenny Lofton. This is the Kenny Lofton who led the major leagues in stolen bases five straight years, who made six all-star games. He won three gold gloves. He was worth 48.6 war for the Cleveland Indians and helped lead them back to the World Series. Lofton probably deserves his own canon spotlight altogether. But all good things must come to an end. And eventually, he was traded in 1997 to Atlanta for David Justice. Justice's three-year run in Cleveland was short but effective. In 1997, he had no PS over 1,000 and made the All-Star game. He batted cleanup in Game 7 of the World Series. And after two more three-war seasons in Cleveland, he was shipped off to the Yankees for a starting pitcher and one of baseball's top prospects, Jake Westbrook. Westbrook was solid but unspectacular for Cleveland, anchoring their rotation for much of the 2000s with an ERA of 4.25 and an ERA plus of 103. Westbrook even made an all-star game in 2004. But once again, it was time to move on. Westbrook was traded to the Cardinals as part of a three-way deal in 2010 that brought Corey Kluber to Cleveland. The rest, as we say, is history. Kluber won two Cy Youngs, led Cleveland back to the World Series, and was now the best pitcher in baseball for a portion of the 2010s. And now, with his off-season trade to Texas, Emmanuel Classe will become the newest member of Major League Baseball's longest trade tree. Since Jerry Dubzinski was a kid, he wanted to contribute to the Cleveland Indians. And he was worth 1.6 war to the ball club, which is more than most fans can say. He had 123 hits, one home run, 14 stolen bases, and 51 RBI. But if you really think about it, from Tabler to Black to Lofton to Justice to Westbrook and to Kluber, Dubzinski's pick in the 15th round of the 1977 MLB draft was worth 119.4 wins above replacement for the Indians. It made 11 All-Star games. It led Cleveland to three World Series. Jerry Dubzinski is a first ballot inner circle Hall of Famer. Dreams, yes dreams, they do come true. Ah, I love it. Did you find that by like researching the longest trade tree or the most extensive so, trade tree? The, the, the question originally I was reminded of was a Sam Miller article about Delman Young, and it basically is the same premise, which is that the Rays drafted Delman Young with the number one overall pick, expecting him to be a franchise-saving star, and he ended up being a complete bust. But the way that they traded him and manipulated all the stuff they got for him, it ended up basically making up the core of the modern Rays team. Right. Like Glass now, Meadows, um, I think uh, – the shortstop. So Archer as well must have Ar come. Yeah. The, the, it's, it, that, those people all eventually came out of Delman Young. And so I was wondering, you know, Delman Young is, is 2000s player. How far back can you push this? And so I found an article written by uh, Sam Miller's partner in crime, Ben Lindbergh, which kind of detailed the longest trade tree for every major league team. But he wrote this article in 2014. So there's been some changes to it. Obviously, Kluber's gone now and stuff like that. And some of the teams that had longer ones, it's, that's had those trade trees ended. 
So as far as I can tell, Cleveland and this crazy series of moves that started with a pretty crappy utility infielder um, and ended up leading to over 100 wins above replacement is, is the longest in baseball active. So this is, a, this is a concept that I've never actually really even thought about, like the idea of extrapolating out trades to, to like assign value to a particular, to a particular pick is, is the only thing that can end a trade tree, a guy that stays within the same franchise and then retires without being moved anywhere. Is that like what, what ends? Or they leave in free agency or they just get sent down and never called back up. Okay. So it has to be. Yeah. A lot of teams don't have very long ones. Right. Like, Like the Cleveland's goes back to 77 but like a lot of the, a lot of them are like mostly into the nineties and it's, it's, it's hard to push it further back than the nineties. That's what I was wondering is like, how common is this? Like I, I would imagine since you're telling this story that it's, that it's not very common. Um, but I, I, I was just, I, I never like have really heard of this and it makes me wonder, is this part of a franchise's thinking? Like it, when you discover for example, like that Adelman Young is probably not going to pan out the way you think he's going to, is it possible to take such a long view where you say, maybe we can start the process of spinning this guy into something more than he's going to be? Yeah. I mean, it's certainly something you have to keep in mind and and Cleveland um, has done that incredibly well. And they, you know, done that with more than just this specific trade tree. It just happened that all of these guys over the course of, you know, four decades were traded for one another. But um, I mean, some of these trades, were kind of bad trades and some of them were good trades it's interesting how how there's there's like no real difference like the first trade for Tabler was a clear win they traded a, a utility guy for a guy who was a starter for them for like half a decade and Bud Black pitched for them really well but he pitched for a season and they basically turned Bud Black into nothing like they turned him into a bunch of shitty players but they kind of lucked out into acquiring Kenny Lofton and then once they had a you know perennial all-star borderline hall of fame type like Lofton it was kind of easy to turn it into top players but I don't think anyone would have bet that when they traded Jake Westbrook they were going to get the version of Corey Kluber that we know today I mean Corey Kluber was a late bloomer and and not considered to be super good some other notable trade trees the longest one ever just ended last year or two years ago when did David Wright retire I don't remember but it ended with the end of David Wright Mm. um the Mets had one that went back to 1967. Um, and it's a bunch of less than Nolan Ryan players. trade. Oh, wait, no, it was later. Never mind. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's got a lot of, it's got a lot of players in it who aren't very well known. It does have like Brett Saberhagen in it, but the, the move that got them David Wright was the compensatory pick for Mike Hampton. Right. Um, and so, and that's part of, and that's part of the, uh, the Bobby Bonilla thing. Because yeah. they needed to restructure Bobby Bonilla's contract so that they could get Mike Hampton. And then when Mike Hampton signed with Colorado, uh, I think Colorado, they got David Wright with the compensatory pick. Yeah. I mean, the Mets one was 11 trades. The Cleveland one was eight trades, but like, I mean, it's pretty crazy that they met, you know, any of these people kept going on for so long those two are like by far the oldest. Then, then you start getting into the, um, into like the mid eighties, like uh, the Padres have one that goes back to the mid eighties, which was, it's kind of cool because they got Adrian Gonzalez and then turned him into Anthony Rizzo and then turned Rizzo into Andrew Kashner and then turned Kashner into a bunch of guys who nobody cares about. For ones that we care about, the Phillies is, is a very short trade tree. 
because uh, they had so much roster turnover when the team got really old and also in the early 2000s. Um, it's just Jimmy Rollins and Zach Eflin. That's as long, far back as you can trace the Phillies. And it seems unlikely that that would be something that continues at this point. I would say Zach Eflin is probably not a candidate to be dealt anytime soon, but who knows? So I decided that I was going to do a trade tree for this, and I was pretty sure I was going to do Cleveland's because it was the longest. But the other trade tree that I did give some consideration to is Miami's trade tree. Because Miami's trade tree actually starts before the franchise was a thing, which I think is hilarious. But it involves them turning Charles Johnson into Mike Piazza, eventually into Mike Lowell, eventually into Hanley Ramirez, eventually into Nathan Neovaldi, which is cool. The initial part of that was oh, very part of that string. Obviously, they only had Mike Piazza for like a week, but then but then you said him to Mike Lowell to Hanley Ramirez. Like, yeah, there's a, there's an intermediate trade between Piazza and Mike Lowell, but it was it was not that important. Uh, like but that, I was kind of shouting. Oh, the I hate the Marlins so much. And then the the Brewers the Brewers have a good one in the mid '90s. Um, they traded Mark Loretta, and then eventually got Nelson Cruz when Nelson Cruz was like a nobody, and turned Nelson Cruz into Francisco Cordero turned Francisco Cordero into Jake Odorizzi, turned Jake Odorizzi into Zach Grinke. Zach Grinke became Gene Segura. And then Gene Segura became Isan Diaz. And Isan Diaz is one of the components sent to the Marlins in the Christian Yelich deal. Oh. Yelich is, uh, is in the Brewers trade tree. Wow. The other thing I liked a little and bit he's more... He's obviously going to get traded. <laughs> yeah. The other thing I liked a little bit more about Cleveland's too is that it's very linear. And it's a lot of one-for-one deals. Mm. So, it's, so it's very easy. So it's, it's, it, you can more confidently say uh, that that one pick was worth 120 war. Because, in, if, for example, in like the Marlins deal, Charles Johnson was not the main piece in the Mike Piazza trade. Like Charles Johnson is how you get the trade tree, but Gary Sheffield and Bobby Bonilla, and that, that's how they got Mike Piazza. Right. Uh, and, and, I mean, the same goes for the Brewers. Isan Diaz was not the reason the Marlins accepted the Christian Yelich trade. Like, he was a low minor leaguer who was not a highly regarded prospect who was basically a throw-in, but he does make it a, a comprehensive trade. Right, they traded for superstar Lewis Brinson. <laughs> exactly. My boy, Lewis. Jackie Robinson once said, a life does not matter except on the impact it has on other lives. That's kind of the point here is, is I just, you know, and it was also cool to me that he was from Cleveland because, you know, just the idea that you're like, you grow up and all you want to do is play for your hometown team and help your hometown ball club. And you can't do it because you are not that good at baseball, but, but your long lasting effects are resonating to this day. Like there is a, it, like it's, it is the oldest roster spot in baseball in a way. You know, that roster spot that Emmanuel Class A or Lionel Shields, whoever sticks around longer, occupies, is the oldest roster spot in baseball now. And it's had a continuous filler of it for a substantial period of time. Well, Jerry Dibzinski has delivered 120 B-War and three pennants and a number of all-star appearances. And now he finds himself in the toy cannon cannon. Well, I like that class. 
It's a very diverse class for just very different reasons. I was curious how Didzinski was going to fit in because Jimmy and I were talking and we were like, this guy like never had a, was never good ever. <laughs> it can't be just the player. <laughs> I, like, I, I was so worried. I didn't want to tip my hand because I was like, this is a fun story, but I didn't want to give any insights, but I also didn't want you guys thinking I was crazy for like, kind of hyping up a story about a guy like you look him up on the internet unless you find this Ben Lindbergh article there is nothing about any of this <laughs> yeah yeah oh, and the, 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 the good thing about the Ben Lindbergh article again is because it was written in 2014 it leads with the Mets so it's all about the Mets and it kind of throws the Indians on as an afterthought thank you all out there for for joining us Jimmy thanks for for hopping on again it was a pleasure anytime